Good morning again. Good to see everyone. I want to express publicly condolences to Reba and Jim, that whole family. Sister Reba was just such a wonderful woman, and uh, told I spoke I spoke to his her daughter the other day about participating in the funeral service, and I said I just loved sitting over here in front of Reba. Uh, just such a beautiful, beautiful voice, and we we have some beautiful sopranos in this congregation, my daughter included. But Reba was just unique. Her beautiful, beautiful voice. And she's singing those praises to God in heaven right now. So what a wonderful, wonderful thing. But we are talking about 1 John today, today anyway. And, um, you know, John is confronted with a just what becomes kind of a complicated false doctrine of Gnosticism. And there's, it's, it's called Gnosticism because they claim it's wisdom, it's wise, but really it's just kind of convoluted false teaching. But John approaches this false doctrine with just simple, plain truths. First John is one of the most simple books written. I know that because back when I was in college, I took six hours of Koine Greek, and that's New Testament Greek. It was an elective, and I, it was in the summer, and I just, the course was being offered, and I just uh, wanted to grab it, and I did, and it was a fun class. And you know what? With just six hours of Koine Greek instruction, by the end of the summer, the end of the second class, the instructor was able, he turned to 1 John in the original language and, and the class was, in, and me, back then, now this is 40 years ago, but we were able to read 1 John in Greek. Now, to temper our enthusiasm, he had us turn over to Romans and try to read some of that. We couldn't even get through the first paragraph. And so, John, that that taught me. I mean, that lesson stayed with me. John is written for children. And that's why you see this phrase occurring so many times in the book of 1 John. My little children. It's written from the standpoint of a father to his child. And, And so, this lesson today is going to be very simple. It's not going to be a profound thing because John is very simple in his approach. In combating Gnosticism, he gets back to the fundamentals. The fundamentals of Jesus' life and his death and his, his, his humanity and his godliness. He is the God-man. He was not a hologram. He was real. And he was here and he came and he died for us, for our sins. And we must then respect that. We must believe in that. And we must then obey his teachings. You know, every single chapter of John, including the third chapter, talks about commandments. Obeying his commandments, obeying his teachings. The first chapter talks about walking in the light. 
The second chapter talks about obeying his commandments, keeping his commandments when we know him. And the third chapter is no different. I want to take just a moment to read this third chapter before we get into the body of the lesson. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our hearts before him and whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. Know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. So we want to... uh, We want to look at this chapter. We want to see how John is really diving in to this theme, not only against 
the Gnostics. Not only against those who would say, hey, what you do in life really doesn't matter. Because the flesh doesn't matter. It's, it's what you know. It's your knowledge. That's what's mat- That's what really matters. And John is saying, that's, that's not right. That's wrong. Because what you do does matter. Now he starts off with a powerful truth. And he says, we have a great love, verses 1 through 3. How great a love that we have. You know, we have a love that is so great that we've sung about and we've expressed in our Lord's Supper here today because we know that the Father gave his only begotten Son. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You see, a lot of people have died in the world. In fact, everyone that's ever lived has died, right? And some people have died horrible deaths. But there's only one time that God died on man's behalf. And so what a great love that is, that the Father gave his only begotten Son, and that this Son became a propitiation for our sins that John talks about later. But here he says he died so that we might be a child of God. God created us, but that didn't necessarily mean we were his children. We're not natural children. What is unique about this is that we are adopted children of God. God chose us in Christ, right? We're we're not natural children, and Paul talks about that in the book of Romans. We're adopted, we're grafted in, right? We're grafted in. And so this is the great love that God has for us. Here is a true statement. Here is a true statement. I am saved by God's grace. There is no way that I merit or deserve his love, his favor, or his promise of eternal life. God has given that to us. He's given that promise to us. He said that when, he said, you know, we don't know exactly what we'll look like, but we do know we'll be like him. We'll be like him. And he has put that hope within our hearts. And so John starts this chapter, just like he started chapter one, with this fundamental truth, right? This fundamental truth that Christ has come to redeem us of our sins. He is the God-man. We saw him, we talked with him, we ate with him, our hands touched him. This is God in the flesh, and he has come to redeem us of our sins. That's the basics. Those are the foundational truths of our lives, of our hope, right? But here's another true statement. Because John... John goes on to say, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Purifies himself. So here's another true statement. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. John says, God has given us a great love and God has showered his mercy and his grace upon him. And... 
expects us to be pure. You know, it's, it's expressed in a lot of different ways in the scriptures, isn't it? Peter says, be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord God. The apostle Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Right? That's the way Paul puts it, right? Paul also says in the book of Titus that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, but it instructs us. It instructs us. To live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. And so God expects us to purify ourselves. Now, I want you to notice that verse again. I don't have it up on the board. I have the beatitude up on the board. But in 1 John 3 and verse 3, he says, Everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself. Well, now that flies in the face of a lot of the... You know, a lot of the cornflake logic you see nowadays, it certainly flies in the face of uh, Gnosticism. John says there is something you have to do. There's something you need to be doing. You need to purify yourself. And the rest of the chapter is John telling us how we do that, at least in this chapter. He says we need to practice We need to practice our righteousness. You know what? Everybody knows what practice is. I'm I'm going to define the word here. But everybody knows what practice is, right? If you want to be a tennis player, you got to get out there and practice. If you want to be a good baseball player, you got to get out there and practice, right? If you want to be a good anything, (laughs) you've, you've got to practice, right? You've got to practice. We can learn the basics. We can learn the fundamentals. We can learn the, 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 we can learn what the book says about it, but we have to do it as well. And the Apostle John is going to use this word practice that has been used over 500 times. Now, the word is practice in the New American Standard Version. The King James says committeth. Uh, some of the other words, some of the other versions just say do this, but it's used over 500 times in the New Testament, this word poieo, practice, 500 times in the New Testament, and it just means to make or to do, to do. Isn't it interesting that the very first gospel sermon that Peter the apostle preached recorded in Acts chapter 2, after delivering that soul-stirring, heart-rendering sermon. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? There is something for you to do to accept God's wonderful, gracious love. And John says that here. He says that here in 1 John 3. To make or to do. In fact, that's... 357 times in the New in the New Testament, it is translated do. And 113 times it's translated make. Here in my version, in, in 1 John 3, it's practice. And this word is used six times right here in this paragraph. Verse 4, 7, 8, 9, and 10. We have to practice our righteousness. You know what? Because... Those who are lawless people, John says, 
are practicing their lawlessness. And he says in the last verse of this paragraph, it's obvious. It's not difficult. It's obvious. It's obvious who the children of God are and the children of the devil are. Little children, he says, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. You know, our lives as Christians are not an event. They're a lifestyle, right? Where have you heard that? Boy, we hear that a lot. (laughs) You You want to lose some weight? You know, and they start talking about lifestyles. You have to change your lifestyle. You have to change the way you look about and look at eating and, and the way you look at exercise and all of that. You have to change your lifestyle. Well, to be a Christian is to change one's lifestyle. It's not just one event. It's not just one event. It's the change of a whole life. And it's obvious. He says, it's obvious who the children of God are and the children of the devil are. In verse 10. And so we've got to have a practice to, to, uh, to be righteous before God. We have to, the, the Hebrew writer says we learn these truths and then our senses are trained to do what is right. In Hebrews chapter 5, by practice. By practice. It's obvious. It's obvious. You know, the Bible is not hard to understand. I mean, look, I know there's there are difficult passages. We're studying we're studying a difficult book right now, uh, Job. There are places that are harder than others, right? First John's not one of them. First John is simple, simple, simple stuff. Okay? And so the things that John talks about and the fundamental truths that are in the Bible, especially the New Testament, are not hard to understand. Oh, they're sometimes hard to implement. <laughs> it's sometimes it's hard to live. It's hard. It's it's hard to make, and to, you know it's hard to make anything really. You know what? Any, anything that's worth making, it's hard to do. You, you have to push yourself through the cycle. You have to push yourself to start and to change and to stop. You've got to get to the end. Oh, it's easy to start things. But it's a lot harder. You know, you've got that list of one through ten that you've got to complete. Oh, it's easy to do one. It's like, because like number one is like open the box. <laughs> but it's hard to get to number ten. Because you've got to do all those things. But you know, it's obvious. Because the Bible has lists. I, I know I'm saying something that's not popular amongst Christendom these days. But the Bible is full of lists, and the New Testament even is full of lists. Okay? So for here's one list. Here's a list in 1 Corinthians. And these are not the only lists. Alright? So when John says, practice your righteousness, or practice those who do not are not righteous are practicing unrighteousness, look at this list. Look at this list. No, John is John would say, don't live like that. Don't live like that. Because here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, what's hard about that? 
The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, what is, what is it to be unrighteous? Well, Paul gives a list. Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you want to be practicing your righteousness before God, to become pure in heart and see God and avail yourself of that wondrous grace that he's made known to you, don't do this. (laughs) Don't do this. Don't be a fornicator. Don't be an idolater. Don't be a thief. What's the difference between a thief and a swindler? Well, a thief, you know he's stealing from you. He just breaks the door down. The swindler, you don't know it until after you've been swindled. <laughs> a swindler is someone who engages in fraud or deceit, you know, or subterfuge. <laughs> a reviler, who is a reviler? You know, the reviler is someone who just despises godly things. And he said, yeah, usually the reviler is someone that's characterized by a lot of yelling. Just yelling at God's people. And he's angry about God's people. And John talks to that, doesn't he? He says, they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you because you are living a righteous life. You are living a righteous life. But on the other hand, on the other hand, do live like this. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. These Christian virtues... For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, practice, there's that word again, practice. Get out the instructions to make it, to do it, to live it, right? Make this your life. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So John finishes that paragraph, but then he gives an example. Now he's going to give an example from the Bible, from the Old Testament. He's going to give an example of Cain and Abel, verses 11 and verse 12. Abel was someone who had righteous deeds and practiced that righteousness. Cain was someone who had unrighteous deeds. Now, someone says, well, sure, I know how Cain was unrighteous. He killed his brother. Just hang on there just a minute. You think think Cain woke up one Monday morning, he says, you know, I'm having a bad day. I think I'll go kill my brother. (laughs) No. No, that's not what happened. What happened is Cain's deeds were evil before he ever committed that murder. Now, I believe there were a lot of evil deeds there, but one of those evil deeds is talked about in Genesis chapter 4, right? 
The contrast is made there of Abel and Cain bringing their offerings to God. Abel brought a blood sacrifice, a sacrifice from his herds, his flocks, and God accepted that sacrifice. Cain brought a sacrifice of vegetables because he was a farmer, and God did not accept that sacrifice. Now, now that, other than Cain's murderous action, that's the only other actions that we have specifically described. And what John is saying to us is Cain's deeds were evil. Now, in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, we know why Abel's actions were righteous, because the Hebrew writer there says that Abel's offering was by faith. By faith. Now, what does that mean, by faith? By faith, it simply means, now this, that's a whole other lesson, so I can't get into this very long, or the clock's going to start ringing back there. Uh, someone's going to push the buzzer, right? The two buzzers. So, but basically, it's this. God said it, Abel believed it, and Abel did it. It's that simple. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Abel heard it, he believed it, and he did it. Cain heard it, did not believe it, and therefore did not do it. Cain is talked about in Jude, in Jude and verse 11. Woe to them, Jude says, for they have gone the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is rebellion. Rebellion against God. Because he mentions two other acts of rebellion here when he talks about Balaam and Korah. Korah was someone who rebelled against Moses. You remember that story? And the earth opened up and swallowed him up because of his rebellion and challenging Moses. And Balaam, who was he? He was that false teacher that wanted to speak evil against God's people as they were wandering in the wilderness and God wouldn't let him. And he kept trying to find ways. Well, can I go back one more time? He just kept trying to curse God's people. He never was allowed to curse. But if you read the rest of the story in Numbers, what you find out is the way he got God's people to sin is by inviting them to a big, big party down in, um, and down in Moab. And, and they, they, they sacrificed to the idol gods. And anyway, that's the way Balaam did it. They, he, they were rebellious. He was going to find some way to rebel against God. Cain's deeds were evil because he didn't believe in God. You know, there's no evidence in Genesis 4 that God explained why he wanted a blood sacrifice. You notice that? Read that story again. You'll see there's no explanation there. It just said God accepted Abel's sacrifice and he rejected Cain. We know why. Now we know why. Because God required a blood sacrifice because in the blood is the life and the life had to be shed in order to take sins away. Just like ultimately Jesus' blood had to be shed. So now we know the reason why. But Abel didn't and Cain didn't. Abel said, I don't know the reason why, but I'm going to do it anyway. Cain said, I don't know the reason why, and it doesn't make any sense to me, so I'm not going to do it. And that's the spirit of rebellion, and that's the example that John gives of righteous practice and unrighteous practice. 
In the following verses, in verses 13 through 24, I'm going to go to the end first. And he just talks about obeying and trusting. Trusting in God and obeying his teachings. This this word keep, keep the commandments that occurs two times in the latter part of this chapter is actually used over 75 times in the New Testament. And it simply means to guard or observe. Most of the time it is translated in English as keep. Keep the commandments. It's used eight times in John, 1 John. And as I said, it's used twice here in this latter part of the chapter. We, we need to keep his commandments. His commandments, we must keep them. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. What is it that we're keeping? Well, we're keeping his commandments. But we're also keeping that faith. That faith, verse 23, that faith in the name of the Son, Jesus. And we're keeping love of the brethren in word or deed. You know, some people misinterpret this a little bit and they say, well, this is the only commandment there is. Really? What? What's 1 Corinthians 6 then? That's not a commandment. And what's 2 Peter 1? That's not the commandment. Oh, there are other commandments besides just believing and loving. Actually, the command to love and to believe are summaries of, are the summation of what we need to do in practicing our righteousness. We need to have faith in Almighty God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if we do that, we will keep His commandments. We need to love our brethren. And if we do that, we will help them in their time of need. John mentions this specific situation in verse 17. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? This is, a, this is an expression then of love, and it is a commandment, isn't it? See, it's not just enough to say, I love you, right? I've got to show that I love you. It's not enough to say that I believe in Jesus and that I believe in God. I have to show that I believe by the practice, by my daily walk of life each and every day. And so we need to trust, trust, and obey. We need to believe in Jesus Christ. We need to love the brethren, but we must obey his commandments as well. And so this is 1 John 3, one more installment. Uh, Fortunately, uh, well, fortunately for me, certainly, uh, this will be my last time at 1 John. Michael and Ryan are going to finish up. But 1 John 3 is just this continuation of this same theme. This same theme, and that is, is that God has loved us so much. God has showered his grace and his mercy upon us. Jesus has come to redeem us of our sins, to be the propitiation for our sins. And if we have that hope within us, we will practice our righteousness so that when that time comes, we will will see God. If there's one here this morning that needs 
to repent of their sins, to become a Christian, obey the gospel for the first time, to be baptized. We hope that you would do that if you've done those things and yet you need to restore yourself back to faithful service. Walk in the light as he is in the light and confess your wrongs. And God, 1 John says, God will forgive you of your sins. Whatever your need might be, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?